Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This week's super series on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in the future of left politics continues today with Julia Salazar, a DSA member running for a Brooklyn State Senate seat in New York's District 18. Salazar's campaign worked hard for Ocasio-Cortez, and now Ocasio-Cortez's team is returning the favor. Recently, the New York Daily News wondered if Salazar might be the new Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez responded that Salazar isn't the next me, she's the first her. Indeed, Salazar has her own story to tell. She immigrated from Colombia as a child and came of age as a young activist by organizing a rent strike in her Harlem building. She describes herself as a democratic socialist, which she defines as recognizing the capitalist system as being inherently oppressive and actively working to dismantle it and to empower the working class and the marginalized in our society. Sounds like a solid analysis and like a good plan, too. Before we get rolling, I am only able to dedicate the time necessary to do things like putting out seven interviews on Ocasio-Cortez in one week, thanks to support from listeners people like you walking around with me talking into your earbuds at patreon.com slash the dig. Plus, we have a weekly newsletter and lefty books to send contributors. So if you like what we do, please support us at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We've already posted interviews with Ocasio-Cortez, Cynthia Nixon, and Bernie Sanders. Next up tomorrow are Seth Ackerman and Kate Aronoff. Okay, here's Julia Salazar. Julia Salazar, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. So this is quite an exciting moment. I want to start just by asking you, how has Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's huge upset victory changed your outlook on your own race? It's been um, a roller coaster of, of a week <laughs> since Tuesday night when Alexandria won her primary um, and by such a huge margin. Uh, I already was deeply inspired by Alexandria's race. Uh, I'm running for state Senate in North Brooklyn. She, of course, was running um, for for Congress in New York's 14th district, which is covers Queens and the Bronx and uh, challenging Joe Crowley, who is has had been the incumbent for, I, I think, 14 uh 14 terms. Um, at least there hadn't a even really been a really long time, <laughs> a really long time, definitely. And, uh, they hadn't even had a democratic primary in, in the district in nearly two decades. So challenging an entrenched incumbent who, you know, just against all odds, um, as a Latina working class democratic socialist, uh, those are, I think, some of the biggest parallels between her race and mine. Um, I'm challenging Martin Dillon, a uh, state senator who has been in office, in this office, for nearly 16 years. And um, I, of course, I identify with with Alexandria personally um, and, and as a fellow DSA member. So the as far as the implications for my race, uh, I, I've 
it's hard to uh, not notice that there's been a, a massive transfer of the momentum that elected Alexandria uh, to my own race. We've seen, um, it, we already uh, had mobilized hundreds of volunteers, but uh, since Tuesday night, we've we've seen a huge surge in energy around my race as well, which is really, really encouraging. And I I heard from people who were there that the first Brooklyn DSA meeting after the election was the largest ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe it was the the North Brooklyn one. We, yeah. We, yeah. Oh, yeah, you guys you guys have it subdivided into <laughs> so many different. Yeah. Jobs. Yeah, New York City DSA, if I'm not mistaken, is the largest um, chapter in the country. And so our branches are, are <laughs> splitting in order to, to be functional. Um, but I was actually at the North Brooklyn meeting, I think it was the day after. Um, and we had a, a ton of new members as well. And, and nationally, thousands of people just since Tuesday night. So it's a really exciting moment for DSA as well. You're running for state Senate in New York's 18th district. Tell me about that district in terms of what it looks like on the ground, who lives there, and also what the political establishment, including your opponent, is in that in that area. So geographically, it includes about half of Greenpoint, most of Williamsburg, all of Bushwick, where I live, and Cypress Hills of East New York. So it's North Brooklyn, and uh, it's, it's about 305,000 people. The uh, Demographically, uh, it's, it's overwhelmingly working class. Uh, 70% of residents are uh, Black and Latino, and it's a very a young, young, increasingly a young district. And... Um, uh, so Senator Dulan has been um, has been in office at least as the state senator. He he's previously also been in city council and the assembly um, for nearly 16 years. His son is actually currently my state assembly representative as well. <laughs> so um, it's a very healthy, normal democracy <laughs> nothing nothing weird about that um <laughs> i was real. i was i was really into it when we were just gonna have like clintons and, and bushes for forever that was that was healthy and normal also right right so here we have um our own clintons and bushes and it's it's uh the delans uh, martin delan is a vestige of or part of a vestige of um the vito lopez Democratic political machine in Kings County that um, previously was based in Bushwick. Uh, Vera Lopez was um, an assembly member who actually passed away in 2015, um, but but uh, in 2013 had to resign from um, from the assembly. He was disgraced over um, sexual misconduct allegations. Dilan um, was very much a, a part of Lopez's inner circle, um, and so that political machine is is no longer technically no longer exists. But um, you can still see the alliances that remain intact, um, and the Dilans are very much a part of that. Um, I would say it's it's really 
uh, Senator DeLon's last lifeline politically uh, because he really doesn't have constituent services. He's completely absent in the district. I was speaking to a constituent the other day who's lived in Cypress Hills her entire life and lives pretty close to DeLon's in-district office. And uh, she said he's, she's seen him twice uh, in, the entire t- in, in her entire life. Um, so I, I think that's a testament to what other people have said as well. Um, he's just not very present, uh, and politically for, for the entire time he's been in office. And even before that, Dilan has taken, uh, tens of thousands of dollars each election cycle, certainly hundreds of thousands over time, uh, directly from for-profit real estate developers, including, uh, Rebney, um, a and and also a lobby called the uh, Rent Stabilization Associate Association, a, 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 a misnomer <laughs> um, for anti anti rent stabilization. Exactly, exactly. It's a, a right to work sort of thing. Um, <laughs> uh, the the way that that they choose to identify themselves, um, but actually Jared Kushner sits on the bo- on their board. Um, Trump himself has previously. Uh, sat on their board, um, so that's the, the kind of organization that we're we're talking about, um, and and private interest that has directly affected Dylan's uh, support for housing policy that really hurts tenants, um, and uh, and has made him accountable to developers over the residents of the district. Uh, so in North Brooklyn, there is. An affordable housing crisis, as there is, you know, of course, in other parts of the country and throughout throughout Brooklyn. But in North Brooklyn, it is, uh, I think, more exacerbated um, and severe. Uh, it affects every inch of the district. People. Williamsburg are, is really where the current wave of gentrification began in in Brooklyn, right? I mean, moving down the L line. Yes, definitely. And the L extends the entire for nearly the entire length of our district, uh, which is an, a, another um, subject entirely, another issue, because the L the L train is going to be shut down next year for repairs um, for, for a long time. And it's going to I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to directly impact a lot of people. Um, and we'll we we really we really urgently need someone in the state Senate who will actually advocate for, for people who take the subway, um, for, for the residents of the district. Uh, in fact, Senator Dillon is a, um, a ranking member, the ranking member of the transportation committee in the state Senate, but, uh, has really been ineffective as far as advocating for, um, for commuters, uh, and people who use public transit. Um, but the, the most, severe issue, uh, is, is definitely housing and, uh, tenants rights. People are being displaced. Families are being displaced in, in the thousands every year, um, as apartments are being destabilized, um, and our, our rent stabilization system has really crumbled. Uh, it needs to be expanded and that's not something we can rely on Senator Dillon to do what do you as as a socialist bring to the housing debate in New York that's been missing from the mainstream liberal democratic agenda the 
biggest difference and what really speaks to uh, constituents when we're knocking on doors, when we're just talking to community members, is the demand for universal rent control. Uh, it's language that people, I think, previously have uh, not had the political imagination to use, even in North Brooklyn, which is a very, very overwhelmingly progressive area. Um, so universal rent control really, really translates to expanding the rent stabilization system beyond New York City. It means ending policies like vacancy decontrol, vacancy bonuses that uh, Dillon has has most notably supported, which um, incentivize landlords to evict tenants um, and uh, in, in many cases permanently displace people, force them out of neighborhoods they've lived in for decades. Um, it means it means um, fighting against MCI-induced rent increases. Um, it What's means MCI? Major capital improvements. Um, so MCI, when landlords increase the rent um, ostensibly in order to make repairs that often are not what tenants requested, are not uh, making their apartments more livable necessarily. But even if even if they are... Sometimes case, they're not even made. Right. Sometimes they're not even made. Um, and, uh, and even if they are, uh, the burden should not fall on, on tenants. Um, you know, th those are costs that need to be covered by developers who can, who can afford to cover them. Um, but instead what, what happens is they increase the rent. It, it, um, can destabilize an apartment, uh, but more, more importantly, immediately force people out of their and, and permanently force people out of their homes. Um, so yeah, these are some policies that, that Senator Dillon has supported and the community in North Brooklyn is very, uh, relatively speaking is, is very civically engaged, uh, and well-organized. Uh, there are a lot of tenants associations, um, nonprofit organizations that, uh, that organize the community to try to have, have been trying to pressure Delon for, for decades on these issues. And he has been unresponsive because of course he is accountable to the developers. Um, but these are issues that really resonate that the, the community is, is generally very well informed on these issues. Um, and, uh, and of course everyone is feeling the effect. So, so, um, the, the, uh, movement, for universal rent control is one that really resonates with people in North Brooklyn. We touched on transit briefly, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. Listeners in New York obviously know that the system is in a profound crisis, but I think listeners everywhere have probably heard about it because of how twisted uh, our political economy and society are in this country. New York's really the only city with a relatively comprehensive subway system. And that's great, but it's falling apart. Explain a little about the crisis and what what you as a socialist are proposing that, that goes beyond what we're currently hearing from either City Hall or, or Cuomo. The source of the crisis is really that um, neither the state nor the city wants to take responsibility for the, the MTA um, and our crumbling 
infrastructure. There are repairs that have been urgent for, again, for for decades at this point. Um, the signal system is really the root of the problem uh, with with the subway. Um, and uh, there were photographs in a New York Times magazine article a little while back, and they look the, the current signal equipment being used looks like it should be in the transit museum. It's truly ancient. Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, Surreal. Yeah. And if you visit the transit museum, uh, they, they will, uh, they, they educate us about, um, about in fact, how old the signal system is and, um, and what the, the source of the problem is that this is really outdated and, um, we're relying on infrastructure that was not meant to accommodate such an enormous, um, population or at least number of, of people who rely on the subway every day. Um, so that's, that's the root of the issue that it's billions of dollars in funding that really does need to come from the state, right? Since, since the seventies, um, it's, it's been the state's responsibility to, um, to fund the MTA and to manage it, um, at every level. Um, so, so what we need is, I think, a millionaire's tax. Um, we need to, we need to make sure that the billions in funding um, is is given to the MTA, and that also it's there's enforcement and oversight uh, in order to make sure that it actually goes to to making the repairs that are really desperately needed. Another critical issue in New York, of course, is criminal justice, both in terms of of policing by the NYPD and also mass incarceration, people arrested, prosecuted in the boroughs and then sent upstate to serve lengthy prison sentences. And it impacts, of course, poor people of color in districts like yours more than anything. What can you do in the state legislature to to fight those systems? So this is an issue uh, that's deeply important to me and that I have um, been devoted to for the last few years as an organizer, uh, focusing on legislative advocacy related to police accountability and um, criminal system reform um, or criminal justice, uh, quote unquote, criminal justice reform. Um, I have done advocacy at both the city level and at the state level. And at the state level, um, advocates have been fighting for, um, to end cash bail is, is the top priority. It's actually also a popular policy, even within the state legislature, it would have an enormous positive effect on the lives of, of millions of people, um, across the state. But, uh, especially people in my own community who are disproportionately as, as, um, a, a predominantly people of color population, um, they're disproportionately affected by broken windows, policing, um, o- over policing, criminalizing our youth, uh, and, and then getting people in the system at a young age so that it, it they're at, you know, even higher risk of being incarcerated long-term, um, and suffering from all of the, the societal effects of that, um, ending cash bail is the top priority, but, um, for years we've been advocating for legislation called the, uh, police sat act, 
Uh, it's passed through the assembly multiple times, and there has been a lack of political will in the state Senate, as well as uh, the, the political dynamic created by uh, Governor Cuomo and the IDC. Um, Which to listeners outside of New York is basically the system of so-called independent Democrats, which is technically no longer in existence, that Cuomo supported these independent Democrats, swung their support to Republicans to keep the state Senate, I believe, in Republican hands, which worked to Cuomo's benefit because then he didn't have to sign more progressive legislation that a unified Democratic legislature would have sent him. And it's pretty New York and pretty twisted. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, The the IDC or Independent uh, Democratic Caucus is a group of of legislators who were elected as Democrats by their constituents and then upon uh, being elected to the legislature immediately betrayed them by entering into a power sharing agreement with the Republicans so that there would be a Republican, a de facto Republican majority in the state Senate uh, preventing progressive legislation from getting through the state legislature. As as you just correctly said, um, it benefits Cuomo. It, it gives him power um, and, and, and justifies him uh, making executive orders. It, it gives him more control in um, pretty much watering down progressive legislation. It puts uh, the Democrats in the state Senate in a weak in a weak position so that they're reliant on on Cuomo. Um, and, and also it has benefited democratic senators like Senator Dillon, um, who are mainstream Democrats, but who, uh, have, have demonstrated that they don't really want to pass progressive legislation. Um, so while Senator Dillon is not in the IDC, um, he's take, he's, he's benefited from the existence of this political dynamic uh, has also, uh, in fact, taken funds, campaign funds from IDC members in the time that they've been in the IDC. Um, and as you also mentioned, there was a deal uh, between Cuomo and the and the IDC members in April publicly, uh, stating that they would rejoin, um, go back to caucusing with the Democrats after this session, <laughs> which really um, is is a very apparent attempt to prevent them from being primaried, um, in, in the upcoming elections. And, uh, of course, you know, they've, they've betrayed constituents before. We have no reason to believe that they will actually, uh, stick to that deal. And so they, they are in fact being primaried. Um, and many of those primary challengers to IDC members are very progressive and, um, and races that I'm really excited about as well. But as far as um, criminal justice or criminal injustice, um, the the legacy of broken windows policing uh, has has caused tremendous harm and um, directly contributed to the the mass incarceration uh, across New York State. Um, despite pledges to end broken windows policing uh, at the city level. Uh, we haven't really seen evidence of that. We know that people uh, are in in our communities, uh, not in um, some of the more the like upper middle class or more affluent neighborhoods in New York City. Um, in our neighborhoods, rather, 
people are still being arrested for things like biking on the sidewalk or having an open container, um, low level offenses, nonviolent offenses that, um, that shouldn't be criminalized. Uh, and actually situations in which officers already have the discretion to either issue a summons or make an arrest. And they frequently are choosing to make an arrest. And that of course is, um, is contributing to the problem of mass incarceration, uh, particularly in New York city. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be this way. There's actually legislation again, that is passed through the, uh, state assembly, uh, that would prevent officers from making arrests in these situations that with, you know, non, nonviolent and low level crimes, um, or low level offenses. Uh, but, but it's made no movement in the state Senate. Um, so a top priority for me as a state Senator would be to end cash bail, of course, and, um, to end these unnecessary arrests as well. Another issue that's big in New York and everywhere, of course, is healthcare there, which is in, in many ways a national issue that Congress needs to figure out. But there are also a lot of fights to do single payer at the state level. Explain what's going on in New York and what you'd like to do in the state Senate. So the New York Health Act is a single payer health care bill that is currently in the state Senate. It passed pretty easily through the state assembly, um, but is being held up mostly by one state senator in the state Senate. Surprisingly, even um, IDC members in the last session uh, co-sponsored the legislation, um, but it's it's being held up by the chair of the health committee, who uh, is also a Democrat who um, who caucuses with the Republicans, um, Simcha Felder. But the New York Health Act uh, would be it, you know, it clearly is um, very popular legislation. Would be a top priority to pass it in the next session. I absolutely believe we can pass it next year, and it really would be a true universal health care bill. It would even include um, undocumented immigrants, uh, demogra- demographics who are typically excluded from uh, from the social safety net, um, from, from from Medicaid. Medicaid yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, you know, we in its current form, the New York Health Act is a pretty robust single payer bill. But we, of course, would you know not only need to pass the New York Health Act next year in order for there to be true universal health care across New York State, uh, but would also need to, I think, expand it to include more than Medicare currently does. Um, We talk a lot about Medicare for all on the left, and of course, it's that's crucial, but it's important to acknowledge the limits in uh, federal Medicare program that it doesn't, for example, include long-term care and home care comprehensively for people, um, for seniors, for uh, our elders, uh, and for people with disabilities. Um, so as a state senator, it would be a priority for me to, to make sure that the New York Health Act isn't, isn't just um, a potentially watered-down single-payer plan, but that it's comprehensive and actually covers all New Yorkers, uh, people in my own district, at currently, uh, you know, can't even afford to take their kids to the doctor when they're sick. Um, certainly family caregivers are suffering. So it's really urgent that we pass it in New York. What about dental? Would it include dental? Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. I'm told uh, vision and dental would be, would be included. So, um, because somehow teeth are like not considered part of medicine, even though they can cause serious health problems and correlate strongly as a visible index of, of class status that leads to all kinds of job discrimination and social stigma. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. Dental, dental hygiene is, is part of medicine, right? Uh, we, we all, um, need to have access to, to dental care. We all need to have access to vision, these things that are minimized by, um, many, you know, private insurance plans. Um, but additionally, the, the New York Health Act actually would include not only reproductive care, so abortion services um, would, would be covered uh, free at point of service, um, but also uh, gender-affirming gender procedures as well. So that's, that's really critical. Yeah. Wow. My last question on the issues um, on policy is New York in general – and Albany very much in particular, are infamously corrupt. What and who, to your eye, are at the roots of this pervasive corruption in New York? And what do you see as the the left's solution that is differed from all the kind of more technocratic good government proposals to deal with corruption in the past? What it comes down to is that ethics reform in New York is is long overdue. There has really not been any progress on this at the state level uh, in many years. Um, and what the left really needs to be demanding and, and um, what I think we, we shouldn't be afraid to demand is publicly funded uh, camp- campaign finance reform um, instead, of, instead of the incremental reforms that are usually proposed um, in, in addition to closing the LLC loophole, which which allows um, people to give enormous amounts of money um, un, unregulated, uh, that that corporations, you know, they, LLCs don't have to. They're not limited by by um, the same caps as far as giving to uh, political campaigns as corporations are. So the LLC loophole. Uh, needs to urgently be addressed, but we also need to be uh, normalizing and, and fighting for publicly funded elections. Um, I've ex- I've firsthand um, experienced this as not only as someone who is running a truly grassroots campaign and uh, publicly refusing any donations from for-profit real estate developers or corporations, um, but, but also as a working person running for office. Um, we don't have uh, even actually a matching system at the state level that we have at the city level in New York, um, which, which makes it very, very difficult to compete with incumbents um, or with candidates who are receiving a lot of support from uh, special interests um, and from the private sector, um, but it also makes it really difficult to even choose to run for office in the first place. Um, the biggest, my biggest concern when people were encouraging me to run um, was that I I wouldn't be able to stop working full time, um, and it's it's virtually impossible to to um, run a competitive and viable campaign while working. 40 or, or more hours a week. Um, so it's it's really important that we have public support for uh, 
you know, all people to be able to actually engage in the legislative process in our elections. Tell me about the the mechanics of, of your campaign, including groups like DSA. How are you organizing? How are you reaching voters? And how are you approaching fundraising? We're running a truly grassroots campaign. I'm thrilled that we've already uh, we've um, we've already mobilized hundreds of volunteers uh, to to canvas, um, to knock on doors. We're finishing petitioning right now, and it's going extremely well. Um, and uh, yeah, what really what really fuels this campaign is a robust field operation. And DSA has been a big part of that. Um, I've been an active NYC DSA member for nearly two years and um, and was endorsed by um, by NYC DSA and then by national DSA. And when DSA endorses candidates, it's never a paper endorsement. Um, it's always related to what DSA members are capable of giving to the campaign um, as as far as people power. And that was really demonstrated in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory on Tuesday. Uh, hundreds of DSA members showed up to support that campaign, myself included, and, and my staff and volunteer base as well. In North Brooklyn, there are nearly 800 DSA members who live in uh, the neighborhoods of the district, which is wow. huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so DSA um, is really, really committed to these grassroots campaigns because we know that um, that's that's what makes the difference. And that's what shocked so many people. Um, why why people didn't believe that Alexandria would win, and it's it's because we were told, and and frankly, we've as we've always experienced until recently, um, is that it's it's impossible for for a grassroots campaign, um, or for yeah for a, for a grassroots campaign with the funds that we typically have to stand up to someone who has millions, right? Um, my opponent, you know, my race is different, so it isn't quite, um, as steep, <laughs> um, but, but it's still normally, um, an, an enormous challenge to go up against an incumbent. Um, and what, so what DSA brings is a big part of the people power that's needed to win. Um, we, we've also seen in this district, um, in 2016 and in 2014 that, a democratic socialist challenger and also a, um, a Latina from South Williamsburg, a tenant organizer, um, and an open democratic socialist challenged Senator DeLon and, uh, and a, and a huge progressive base rallied around her, um, and supported her in the polls, uh, even despite, um, that she didn't have the, the field operation and, and, um, people support. Um, and campaign infrastructure that we have. Um, so all of this is to say that that we're we're finally seeing the effects of uh, mobilizing people, talking to our neighbors, um, really actively engaging all community members in these campaigns, and even using these electoral campaigns to amplify 
uh, organizing that has already been going on in the district um, for, for decades around tenants' rights, for example. Julia Salazar, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I hope that listeners will check out our campaign. Our website is salazarforsenate.com. Julia Salazar is a DSA member running for a Brooklyn State Senate seat in New York's District 18. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that working class politics compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. This week, a lot of episodes. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes, please do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show, your family, total strangers. Please make propaganda for us. And last, but by no means least, do support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. 